Well, we are going to continue in our study of the book of Genesis. And uh, we have worked our way through 21 chapters so far. Uh, for, the, for 10 chapters, uh, we have been waiting for the birth of Isaac. 25 years in the life of Abraham, we've been waiting for this promised child. And finally, last week, chapter 21, little Isaac is born. And today, uh, we read about what God asks Abraham to do with Isaac. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took wood and laid it on his son, and Isaac carried the wood up the mountain. And he took his hand, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in you, your offspring, uh, shall all the nations of 
uh, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, when it comes to applying the Bible to our lives, we need to be careful. Okay? How many times have you heard a sermon uh, or, uh, or a reference to this passage where God calls Abraham to sacrifice that which he loves most, his son Isaac, lay it on the altar, and you should lay what you love most on the altar. Uh, I heard of a, a women's retreat where the, the speaker spoke about this passage, and then she challenged all the ladies, you know, if you really love God, you need to, uh, to offer up, give away that which you love most. And, of course, they all struggled with that. You know, what do you love most? Well, my children... Husband, second, maybe. Or it would be children, dog, husband in some cases, right? Um, but, but a lot of the women are like, I can't do that. I don't think I could do this. I must not have faith when God calls me to do this. Maybe I'm not saved. And they, they go into turmoil. Um, now, I think this is a classic example of missing the three basic steps of Bible study. Um, those of you who've been through uh, a class on how to study the Bible, there's three steps. There's usually observation, where you clearly read the text, and you make sure you understand what it's saying. The second step is interpretation. Okay, Are we interpreting in, it properly in the proper context, not only of the passage, but historically, are we getting the right context? So there's observation, interpretation, and then application. If you skip interpretation and go right to application, you get this. Observation. God calls Abraham to kill his son. Application. Caleb, come here. Right? Where's Josh, by the way? He knew I was preaching on this, yeah. (laughs) Two of my children knew not to be here, okay? If you skip the interpretation passage, you might end up with a lot of dead children. Okay, what's the what's the interpretation of this passage? Well, I think an important question that we need to ask is this: Is today's passage a unique historical event, or is it an ex- is it an example that we are to follow for all time? Okay. To what degree is this event unique versus just a clear example that you're to follow all the time? Now, my answer, I wish my answer were as cut and dried as it's either historical or it's an example. My answer is this. It is primarily a unique historical event, but it can be an example for us in some ways, but not other ways. Okay. In other words, we have to separate out that which is unique and that we're not to follow from, from the application of that which we are to follow. So here's my two-point sermon today. That threw some of you. You're like, can you preach a sermon without three points? No. Here's a two-point sermon. Right? What is unique about this event? That's point one. And then point two, what is an example that we're to follow? Okay, so let's talk about, first of all, um, 
What's unique about this passage? Well, first of all, here's what's unique. You are not the unique head of the covenant people of God. Abraham was. So there's one thing that sets you apart from Abraham. He is the unique head of the covenant people of God. Secondly, God uniquely worked with Abraham over a period of 25 years, strengthening his faith. Okay, This is not one day out of the blue. God calls some guy named Abraham, and the first thing he says to him is, go sacrifice your child. God had spoken many times to Abraham. God proved himself faithful to Abraham time and time again, doing miraculous things in his life. So God works building his faith for 25 years. Okay? And thirdly, this is most importantly, prior to God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son, he promises Abraham that through this son, his descendants would come. In fact, last week, Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Little babies born through him, not through Ishmael, through him will your offspring be named. Guess what? This hasn't happened yet. So whatever happens on the mountain with the knife and the fire and the altar, it can't end in death. And Abraham knew it. How do we know this? Because as they're going up the mountain, Abraham tells his servants, you stop, you stay right here. It says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We'll be back. You just wait here. Isaac and I, we're going to go do something over here. We're going to worship God and we'll be back. Okay. Now, um, as I was studying this, before I even looked at the New Testament passage in Hebrews, I thought, is there anywhere where God promises that through Isaac, uh, his descendants would come? And I I just turned back one chapter to what we studied last week and found this. Genesis 21, 12, it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Then I remembered in Hebrews, there's some comment about how Abraham could do this. And look what it says, Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The, the, the New Testament author quotes Genesis 21.12. In essence, what he's saying is Abraham in his mind thought God's promise that through Isaac the descendants will come. The descendants haven't come yet through Isaac. Therefore, this will not end in death. So it goes on to say, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, Abraham believed that this would not 
end in death. It might start in death, but he believed that even if Isaac died, God would raise him from the dead. So, do you need to fear God speaking to you in your bed out of the blue one day and calling you to sacrifice one of your children on the altar? I would say you might need to fear that if you are the covenant head of the people of God, if God has worked with you for 25 years building your faith, and if God has promised that through your child the Messiah would be born. Is that true of any of us? No. Right? In, in a certain sense, chapter 22 is no more an example to be followed than the example of Abraham in chapter 21, where Abraham kicks his second wife, Hagar, and his, uh, his son, Ishmael, out and makes them homeless. That's a unique historical event, not a parenting example to follow. Okay, There's a degree to which this is very unique. Now, you say, okay, you've established that. I, I can relax now and not fear that God's going to ask me to do this. Okay, But why would he ask Abraham to do this? Well, this whole event is a type pointing to Christ. And when I say a type, what's a type? Uh, it's, it's the Old Testament, an event, a person, an office, in the Old Testament that foreshadows Christ. Okay, This is probably the greatest type of Christ. Maybe the, the Passover lamb is, is right up there, but this is, is one of the greatest types uh, pointing to Christ. Now you say, who's the type in this passage? Is it Isaac or is it the lamb? How would you answer that? Yes. <laughs> Both of them are type. Just like diabetes, you can have type 2 diabetes, you can have type 2 types. Yeah. <laughs> Isaac, Isaac, first of all, is the type of Christ until he's laid on the altar. Right? Take a look at, uh, at this. It says, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son, he said. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, stop right there. Now, some scholars, and I don't claim to be a Hebrew scholar, okay, but there are some Hebrew scholars who say that grammatically... Uh, this phrase, God will provide, that's in a future tense, could be translated in a present tense, God is providing. In other words, the idea would be, hey, Dad, where's the lamb? God is providing the lamb. In other words, you're the lamb. And Isaac continues to walk with Abraham. Now, I don't know. I, I, I have a tendency when I don't know uh, 
enough about a language to rely on the English translations and virtually every English translation translates it, God will provide a lamb. But I still think, I still think we can say that at some point, Isaac realizes he's the lamb, yet he continues to submit to what's going to happen. Okay? In fact, uh, verse 9, when they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Okay? Um, now, we don't know exactly how old Isaac was. Many people think in his teens. So let's say he's 15. How old does that make Abraham? 115. 115-year-old old guy. Little whoopersnapper. Actually, 15. I remember distinctly when um, my kids hit puberty. And prior to that, when you play one-on-one basketball, you kind of let them win, right? Sorry. Sorry to shatter your illusions, right? Um, then they hit like 13, and you are like all out, just you're hitting your kid, and you know, it's just all out. One, And then they beat you. That's like 13 or 14. How... Can a 113, 14, 15-year-old man pull this off? Now, you say he bound him. Do well, you think he ran around with a rope chasing him down? And, you know, <laughs> I, I think Isaac submitted to being bound. Why bind him? So when you put him on the altar and the knife is raised, you don't fall off the altar. Okay. But all that to say, at some point, whether it's the point when he's walking up the hill or when he's being bound, Isaac submits to death. Imagine the trust he must have had in his father. Now, this is a picture of Christ who for eternity exists as part of the Trinity. And then he submits to becoming a human, and he submits to going to the cross. You know, it's kind of trendy today in certain liberal circles uh, to say we don't believe in substitutionary atonement where, uh, where Christ died in the place of, of sinners. Um, you know, first of all, we're not that bad, they would say, so we don't need a sacrifice. And secondly, that makes God... Uh, a, a perpetrator of divine child abuse to take his son and, and slap him up against that cross. That's just a horrible thought. Well, first of all, we are that bad, okay, that we need a substitute. <clears throat> and secondly, Christ didn't go to the cross, cross against his will. In fact, in John ten eighteen. Jesus, speaking of his life, says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. My Father gave me this command, and I willingly submit to it. I willingly go to the cross. So, uh, Isaac is the type of Christ in that he 
voluntarily submits to being sacrificed. But at some point, I would say at the point when the the knife is being raised, at some point Isaac stops representing Christ and he starts representing us. Sinners who deserve death. And now the ram caught in the thicket represents Christ. The Lamb of God that John the Baptist pointed to. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now Isaac is let off the altar. We are let off. And the ram representing Christ is actually slain on the altar. Now, you say, why would God require this? And there are a a multitude of illustrations that we've used in the past. Probably my favorite is the tribal leader. It was a tribe with a leader who was wise, just, and loving. And in this tribe, um, it was discovered that somebody was stealing amongst other members of the tribe. So they asked the leader, what are we going to do? And he said, well, um, when the person is caught, they will receive ten lashes. That should stop it. Stealing continued, and he upped it to 20 lashes. And it continued, and he upped it all the way to 50 lashes, which nobody had ever survived before. Well, it was discovered that it was his own frail mother who was doing the stealing. So now the question is, what's he going to do? He's known for his justice, And if he says, oh, it's mom, let her go, he would not be just. But he's also known for his kindness and his love. And is he going to let his mother die? So the day of the punishment came and he said, tie her to the post. She was tied to the post. And he called the whipmaster forward and he said, 50 lashes as hard as you can. And then he took off his shirt, wrapped his arms around his mother and said, proceed with the punishment. Just and loving. He didn't cancel the just penalty. He took it himself in her place. That's what the cross is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. And that's what God was doing here on the mountain 2,000 years before his own son was sent on the same mountain. By the way, uh, this is Mount Moriah. And many people believe that... Now, this is, this is actually a Muslim shrine, but this is the Temple Mount where King Solomon built the first temple, and then it was followed by the second temple that King Herod built, and it is believed that actually Isaac's altar is right where this this, uh, Muslim mosque is. So um, this event takes place on Mount Moriah 
And then, literally millions of lambs are slain on this spot. And then outside the temple walls, Jesus was slain. The true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, let me show you one more thing. You say, did the Old Testament readers understand that this was pointing to something yet to come? Careful readers did. Those who did their K. Arthur study well, you know, they did, okay? Um, In Genesis 22, after this whole event, it says this, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And by the way, one reason I like the future tense is because if it's future tense here, then it's probably future tense in the earlier uh, passage. But the name of the mountain is the Lord will provide. Now look at this. As it is said to this day. What day? Well, Moses is writing this 430 years after the time of Abraham. So during the time of Moses, it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Literally, on this mountain, something is yet to take place. Yes, something incredible already took place, but that's pointing to something even more incredible, that yet shall take place. Amazing. So, what what is unique about this event? Abraham's the unique covenant head. You aren't. God worked with him uniquely, in unique ways, speaking to him, doing miracles for 25 years. Right? And God promised that his son would come out alive on the other end. It's a unique event in the life of Abraham. Why? Because it pointed to Christ. But now, let's ask the question, what can we apply? What, how, how can we look at this as an example? Three ways we can look at this as an example. One, it's an example of testing uh, Genesis 22, 1 says this, After these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham is the father of our faith. He is the ultimate example of faith. But an untested faith, how can that be an example to us? Well, what, uh, what this teaches is that those who have true faith, God loves you enough to test your faith, to Strengthen your faith. Peter Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, 7, speaks of the tested genuineness of your faith. And then he uses the example of gold refined. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested or refined by fire. He's, He's saying this, your faith is the most precious thing you own. It's even more precious than gold, which is the most precious commodity uh, on earth. Okay, And this precious thing called gold, what do we do with it? We refine it. We test it with fire. And if we do that to the most valuable thing, wouldn't God also test your faith? Okay. Now, um, 
I don't know about you, but that scares me a little bit. I don't like tests. Right? Do you like tests, dear? No. You're taking a big test coming up. Yeah, it's hard, right? Um, it's uncomfortable. Okay. And have you ever had just a mean teacher who wanted you to fail? Um, I I think of uh, I think of football practice. And I distinctly remember two coaches that I had. One was Mr. Mean Guy. Now he made he he made Mike Ditka look like Grandma. Right? He would he would yell at us, and even in the middle of a game, if somebody goofed up, he'd yank you out of the game and grab you by the. It didn't happen to me, but it happened to my next door neighbor. He'd grab the face mask and he'd yell at you in front of the, the crowd. He, he hit one kid over the head with his, his clip, over his helmet with a clipboard and broke it in half. Okay, yeah, yeah. They weren't, they weren't that worried about concussions back then, right? Um, so we played more out of fear of the coach than anything else. And I think... Some of you may have that picture in mind of God when you read about testing. But there was another coach we had. He was a coach during our sophomore year. And um, there was just something different about this. He was, he was just as intense, but you could tell he was for the kids. Okay, In fact, um, I remember... When, when we would lose, we would have extra wind sprints to do and up-downs. He would do them with us because he figured, you know what, I'm part of this team. It's, it's not me against you peons. It's us. He was for us. In fact, I remember one time I was with practice and it was raining and we were hitting each other and we were covered with mud. And he, uh, So he was calling the offense and I played guard, and uh, he called the play. He kind of talked like a dumb guy, kind of like Rocky. And um, he said, all right, break. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, Smitty, come here. He called me Smitty. So I went back, he goes, yeah, coach. And he reached inside my helmet, and I had like this loose, I had hair back then, this little loose hair, and he goes, okay, run the play. <laughs> Covered in mud and leaves and blood and you know, right? So, Coach One, he's testing you with drills and and he's against you. Coach Two, yeah, there's tests and there's drills, but he's for you. Now the question is, as God tests your faith, is he for you or against you? And that's where Romans comes in. Romans eight. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, I I think some of you may have a major shift in your soul if you would just believe this word, for He's for you. If he gave up his son, if he did the the big thing, how much more will he do? Everyday life, even if it's a trial, 
And knowing that he is for you makes all the difference. Do you believe that? Okay. So one way we can apply Abraham's example is that God tests our faith. But as he tests it, he is for us. Second uh, thing we can learn from Abraham's example is that God will produce works if we have genuine faith. Okay? It's interesting that Paul's prime example of justification by faith alone, apart from works, Paul's prime example in Romans 4 is Abraham. Because uh, in, in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. Paul's prime example of justification by faith alone, apart from works, is Abraham. James, chapter 2, James prime example of justification by works, not faith alone, is who? Abraham. I think I stumped you there. But they don't mean the same thing by justification. Okay. Um, let's look at this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You go, wait a minute, I thought the whole Protestant Reformation was about justification by faith alone, not by works. And this says Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Well, here, when when there's an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it's only apparent because Scripture's infallible. It can't contradict. So you have to ask the question, might the word that we find in one verse, and the same word, if it's in another verse, but it appears to be contradiction, is the word, does the word mean the same thing in both contexts? And we discover that that word justified can mean two different things. Paul uses it virtually all the time to mean declared right before God. You could say this, uh, he uses it, to mean declared right before God by God. It is God declaring a sinner to be right and perfect. Why? Because he has faith in Christ and Christ's righteousness is given to him. So when Paul uses the word justified, it means declared right by God. But there's other places where it means not declared right by God, but demonstrated to be right before a watching world. Okay, Jesus says that wisdom is justified by her action. Wisdom is demonstrated to be right by her action. Okay, so the question is, when James uses the word justified, is he talking about being declared right before God, or is he talking about demonstrating that your faith is genuine? And we see earlier in the same chapter that demonstration is what James has in mind. James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. Demonstrate to me your faith. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The context is showing that your faith is genuine. Abraham showed his faith was genuine. 
His faith that had already justified him back in chapter 15. He showed that his faith was genuine. How? By the work of being willing to sacrifice his son. So let's read this. Was not Abraham our father justified, shown to have faith, shown to be right by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there they actually quote, James quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There he's already counted as righteous. There he's justified in Paul's sense and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified in James' sense, shown to be faithful, shown to have faith, by works and not by faith alone. Okay? Sorry if you've been a part of Valley Brook. We've gone over that a million times, but we live in a world that doesn't make that distinction, and when you don't make that distinction, you lose the gospel, and when you lose the gospel, you go to hell. So I think it's important to clarify Paul and James in the word justified occasionally for the sake of your eternal salvation. Okay? Um, But all that to say, if you claim to have faith, are you demonstrating it by your obedience? Not that he's going to call you to sacrifice your child, but sometimes he calls you to do some pretty difficult things. Okay? Last thing. Last thing that that we can uh, use as an example from Abraham's life. Abraham is the ultimate example of looking beyond the things of this world. Abraham's the ultimate example of saying, you know what? There's a resurrected life out there. That's more important than whatever this life has to offer. You know, Jesus said this, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not all about this world, this stuff. Your house, your car, your lawn, your PlayStation 2, 3, or 4, your iPhone. Boy, we live in a generation where it's all about the stuff. And Jesus said, be careful. You're, you're going you're gonna to fall into all kinds of problems when you think it's all about the stuff. Okay? Let me skip that one. But Jesus, Jesus goes on. You know, he, he tells the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, go sell everything to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler can't do it. So then Peter raises his hand. He goes, <clears throat> We've kind of done that, Jesus. You know, we've given up the good fishing business. And my family's up in Galilee, and here I am following you in Jerusalem. What about us? And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake 
will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Oh, following Christ is so hard. You might lose your family. You might not make as much money as if you pursued your degree the way everybody else did or if you lied a little bit. Oh, it's so hard. Really? What about an eternity? We've got to shift our focus from the here and now to eternity. And Abraham counts the cost. He says, yeah, there's the here and now. I've been waiting for little Isaac all my life, literally. I've been waiting for him for a hundred years. Yes, he has. Sacrifice him. Well, this life isn't all there is. There's a life beyond this. Let me end with uh, the story, one of my favorite stories, of the missionaries spent their life in Africa serving the Lord. Nobody knew about them, the couple. And... um, they're old, they're tired, and they take a ship back home. And um, on the ship, there was some famous politician. Some say it was Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know. I don't know who it was. But as they pull up to the harbor, there's a band waiting for the politician. There's a crowd waiting to welcome him home. And there's nobody to welcome them home. And they have their little suitcases, and they get off the the ship and they rent a cheap hotel room that night and uh, the wife looks at her old husband and he looks mad, he looks upset. And she says, what's wrong? And he says, well, I'm kind of upset that we come home, there's nobody to greet us, there's, uh, there's, there's no money in our pocket but this politician, he goes on a short trip, and there's a big band to greet him. He comes home to big fanfare, and we come home to nothing. And she says, honey, now why don't you just go have a quiet time with the Lord? And he goes in the, in the bedroom, closes the door. A few minutes later, he comes out with a big smile on his face. She says, what happened to you? He says, well, I told the Lord about the politician coming home to big fanfare, and I told him I was upset. That I come home and there's nothing and we have nothing. And the Lord spoke to me. What did he say? You're not home yet. Let's pray. Oh Lord, lift our eyes from the things of this world. And Lord, while you may not call us to a test like you gave Abraham. You do call us to various tests, whether we're more loyal to the things of this world or to eternity. And Lord, I pray that you would lift our eyes and our heart and our affections to things above, not earthly things. Thank you for Abraham's obedience, which ultimately points and Isaac's obedience, which ultimately point to Christ's obedience, which purchased our salvation. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection by which we are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.